Good morning. My name is Wayne Broderick. I am thrilled to get to teach with you today. You have such an incredible staff here. I, I've spent a little bit of time with them over the last few years, and they are just, you are very well shepherded and very well taught, and it is an honor. Speaking of your staff, this is, this is, uh, this is totally extra, but I have to tell you a hilarious story. I hadn't thought of this story in years but one of your children was up here between services, and uh, and one of the other sta- one of the other band members grabbed and was running with your child out of the place. And it reminded me of the best ever answer I heard to uh, your most embarrassing moment story. Okay, I'm teaching at a group of pastors, and I said, "Okay, let's get to know each other. Tell your most embarrassing moment." And this one guy's story was this. Grew up in a little Baptist church, little Baptist church in a small town in Texas, and uh, in those days they sat with the parents the whole time through the whole service. And this kid was he, he was just really fidgety, ADD kid. He just couldn't keep himself still. And his mom had just had it with him. She'd given him plenty to draw on, plenty to do, and he was still just a terror, right? And he wouldn't calm down. And so finally, Dad looked at him and said, "You have got to quit disturbing people, or I'm taking you back to the bathroom," right? for chastisement. So the kid, he said, that lasted about 10 seconds. I sat still terrified. And then, and then I started bothering people around me again, throwing airplanes at people. And so dad said, that's it. And he picked me up and walked through the pew with me over his shoulder, little three-year-old kid over his shoulder. And he walked through the pew and he turned and was walking out of the auditorium. Jack, the pastor, said, okay, I'm a three-year-old kid. I'm going out. I don't know what to do. And I'm walking out, and I'm over my dad's shoulder, and I'm looking right at the pastor who's at the podium trying to preach through my disturbance, right? And I look up at the pastor, and not knowing what else to do, I screamed out, pray for me! (laughs) And the pastor said, let's pray. (laughs) And this was his prayer. Lord, let that kid get spanked so hard. It was awesome. All right, that had nothing to do with what we're doing. All right. A few weeks ago, Adrian Beltre became only the 31st person in all of human history to get 3,000 hits in the major leagues. How many of you were excited about that? You saw that? Wasn't that amazing? Some of my Tyler friends were there. I was home watching on TV, trying desperately not to covet. Um, the scene was just absolutely electric. I mean, you, you could feel it even through the TV. It was, it was loud. It was exciting. It was encouraging. Uh, I mean, Adrian Beltre was cementing his place in the Hall of Fame right before all of our eyes. It was awesome. And Adrian said afterwards what we all can imagine is true. He said that that, that incredible crowd of witnesses around him made him just play better that night. Now, You may think that you have never experienced that feeling of being the hero in the arena with the crowd of witnesses all cheering you on, but if you think that, you are wrong. Open your Bible to the book of Hebrews where you've been studying this summer. Hebrews, right after Titus and Philemon, before James, go to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that lay before him, endured a cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God's throne. What was the very first word that we read in verse 1? What was it, boys and girls? Therefore. When we see a therefore in the text, we ask ourselves, What's it there for? That's right, because that means there's a connection. There's a connection to the previous text. So we look at the previous text. Anybody here remember what the end of chapter 11 was about? What was the end of Hebrews 11 about? That's right. Yeah, the, the faithful, the ones before us, the hall of fame of faith, those wonderful Old Testament saints that went before us and who trusted Yahweh and believed he was going to send his Messiah and who showed us the life of God's grace through faith. 
By faith in Jesus, we are the same followers of the path taken by those who ran this race before we did. And when we look at their lives, it's like we have this huge crowd cheering us on. It's like we have a a great cloud of witnesses yelling, we're on your side. We're for you. The illustration is that we are runners in an amphitheater living the life, running the race of faith, and the Hall of Fame is there cheering us on. Now, you need to understand, please listen carefully. This is an illustration, and the terms are really important. I cannot emphasize enough what a big deal this is in the text. The word that we render cloud is the Greek word nephos. Uh, nephos, uh, you get to say it. It's your, it's your fancy word for the day. Okay, you get to learn a new word. So on the count of three, say nephos. One, two, three. Nephos, very good. Nephos is a really old word. In fact, get this, it was an old word when this text was written. It was an ancient word. Whenever you're reading in the Bible and, and, the, and the author purposely uses a really archaic word, they do that for a reason. It means they're trying to say something very, very specific. So let's look at what nephos means. Nephos is, is something that describes a, a nebulous entity, something ephemeral, uh, and yet it's really densely packed together. In other words, the the stands are full. They're packed together. Now, these Hebrews would have been familiar with the Roman circuses and the Roman amphitheaters. The the Flavian amphitheater, the one that we now call the Colosseum, it held over 80,000 people. Your pastor and I were there not very long ago. We were there together teaching. Imagine those stands full of people all cheering you on. That is what's being described in verse 1. These heroes of the faith that have gone before you, it's it's like they're all out rooting for you. Now, please note, This is an illustration, not a revelation. There is no promise here that any mere human in heaven is looking at you right now. Okay, don't misunderstand the text. That's not what it's saying. There's there's no implication that that Jacob is focused on events here on earth. There There is no hint that your wonderful old Aunt Harriet is looking over you right now. Remember that Greek word for cloud? It means densely packed, but it also means loose and ephemeral, like like water vapor. It's not it's not something solid. I remember being a little boy. I was little. Gosh, I was probably three. The first time mom and dad ever drove us up a mountain. And, and daddy pulled over to the side of the road so we could look down at something we'd never seen growing up on the Great Plains, clouds from above. And it was awesome. These big, white, fluffy clouds, and they looked so solid. They were right down there underneath us. And my mom, knowing her foolish son, put her hand through the back of my belt. And she was smart to do so because I jumped up to the edge and I was going to jump right off. I was going to go fly and land on that cloud, that solid looking cloud, just like in the cartoons, right? And mom pulled me back and she said, I knew you would do that. She said, son, those can't hold you. And I remember I looked at her and I said, but aren't they real? And she said, yeah, they're, they're real. She laughed at me. They're real, but it's not something on which you can stand. That's nephos. Okay, the support is is thick, it's real, but it's not tangible. It's it's like water vapor. You're wet with encouragement after you go through chapter 11, after you read about the heroes of the faith, but there's no physical intercession for you by mere humans. Please don't be depressed by that. Think. You don't need any more intercession. The Bible promises that Jesus himself is always with you. The Bible promises that Jesus himself is always watching you, that his Holy Spirit intercedes for you all the time with words too deep for groaning. Surely that is sufficient, all God's people said. Amen. That is enough. Now, look at the implications 
Um, by the way, here's how this thought section works. In, in this part of Hebrews we're studying today, there are three illustrations, and then there are implications that flow from every one of those illustrations, okay? So this was our first illustration. Now let's look at the implications. The first one is that what changes in me, as a result of the fact that I'm following our forefathers in the cloud of witnesses, what changes in me is that I must lay aside sin. You see that in verse 1? What did a person do at the time this was written if he wanted to run? What did he have to do? He had to take off what? Yeah, he had to take off the outer clothing. Uh, if he was a Roman citizen, he wore a toga. That was a privilege. He wore a toga. Um, uh, or she wore a toga. By the way, if she had five children or more at the time this was written, she was allowed to wear a purple sash on her toga, and she got to cut in the front of every single line. Don't you wish we did that now at the grocery store? Pretty cool. Uh, they did that because abortion was becoming very widespread and the population wasn't sustainable. It didn't work, sadly, but it was a good idea. Um, and so they had a toga. If they, weren't, if they were a slave, they would have a ship, what we would call a ship, but it was a long, straight thing. If they were a member of the Praetorian Guard, they had on a, uh, a, a special, not a toga, but a special kind of ship. But they all came down and covered your legs. You can't, you can't run in that, Right? It's not possible, so you had to take it off. And so you, when you would run, you would just be wearing a, the under, they wore undercoat, an undercoat, or sometimes just a loincloth, and you would run in that. You had to lay aside. Those clothes are natural as part of their outfit, but they have to be shed for the person that are in the race. Okay, similarly, the natural sins of our lives are like robes that entangle our legs in our pursuit of Jesus. Gentlemen, let me speak to you for a minute. You guys know that it is natural for you to tend toward lust. Lust trips you up. It is part of having testosterone in your veins. And by the way, the tendency is not in of itself sinful. But what if you act on that tendency? What if you try to follow Jesus without, without fighting against that tendency, without removing that in your life? What if you, NFL season's about to start. What if you decide to look with desire at the lusty bimbo beer ads that are always a part of every, of every broadcast? What if you give in to the ever-present porn temptation that is on the internet, on your phone or your computer? In those moments when you give in to that, your race of faith finds you flat on your face, right? Out in the cold alone. That's what happens. Please, put aside those things that drive you away from the warm encouragement of the arena and leave you all alone out in the cold. Mute the TV. Go get a Coke. I, it, Better too much unhealthy sugar than too much unhealthy sex. Um, put locking software on your, on your computer like I have and like our church staff have. Put, put your phone where it, you cannot use it uh, for evil. You want to live a life of belief. You want to follow Jesus. Believe that God is good, that he knows best for you. He knows best how to care for your body and soul. So lay aside that sin that trips you up and trust him. Amen? Teenagers, let me talk to you for a moment. It is normal. It is normal to tend toward parental separation as you grow up. That's fine. But you don't have to rebel. You, lay aside those friends and, and influences, those movies that teach you to fall on your face, to get tripped up in sinful rebellion without a clue. Get that junk off your legs. And, and women and children, you have encumbrances as well, but I'm out of time. I'm not going to talk about yours. All right. <laughs> the implications of the great cloud is that the first implication is that we lay aside sin. Second implication, that we run with endurance. You can press on. Do you see the word race in verse one? That's the Greek word agon. Uh, agon, it's, it's the same word, Greek word from which we get our word agony. Isn't that fascinating? A agony and race are from the same word. There's a direct connection. No pain, no gain. 
Since we are connected to those who've endured a whole lot more than we have, we take heart and we never, ever give up. We don't give up. 1936, since we're talking about baseball today, the greatest game ever invented. 1930, that was for you, by the way. Um, 1936, the baseball season opened uh, at the Washington Senators uh, game where the president himself came, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, came and threw out the ceremonial first pitch. Uh, it was pretty inspiring to people because Roosevelt had to struggle to get up into a standing position to throw the ball because he was confined to a wheelchair. Um, I am not a huge fan of his presidency, but FDR was a bold and brave overcomer. If you don't know about him, that president had fought polio and won. And the whole country took heart from FDR's courage, and they believed him. When he told a nation gripped with fear, much like today, your nation, this is a state of fear. Um, he told a nation gripped with fear, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And people took great power in that. Now, after throwing out that ceremonial first pitch in 1936 and sitting back down, the president turned the ball over to the ace of the senator's pitching staff. It was a guy named Bobo Newsom. Bobo was from the South. He was a very colorful character. First inning, two outs. Um, Bobo Newsom throws the ball and it comes back. A wicked line drive comes back and smashes him right in the knee. And he collapses, of course, and is down. And he's down for a minute or two. And then he gets up. He gets up. He waves the trainer back to the dugout. He throws one more pitch, gets a pop out, and he's out of the inning. All right. <clears throat> he went on and pitched a masterful game. Get this. He only gave up three hits, one run, complete game he pitched, and the Senators won the ball game. But immediately after the ball game, Bobo Newsom went down to the dugout, and he called the trainer over, and he said, I need to go to the hospital. My knee's busted. And the trainer laughed, but Bobo didn't laugh. And the trainer reached down, he touched his knee, and it was like jelly. His kneecap was shattered. And the trainer said, how in the world did you pitch eight and a third innings with a broken kneecap? How could you do that? And Bobo Newsom said one of the greatest quotes ever in baseball history. He said, well, the president came to see Bobo pitch, and I couldn't let him down. Jesus endured far more than you or I can ever imagine. And he is watching us. And he is with us. We can't let him down. Those forebears of ours who comprise our nephos of faith, they, they, they who ran before us, they endured much. And by God's grace, so can we. To do so, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. That's our next implication. If you have ever run sprints, you know that you cannot win if you turn your head to, to look at anything around you. You've got to look straight ahead at the goal. Jesus is there. He is our goal. We must look straight ahead at him. But how? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus standing at the finish line? The, the text has a really cool clue for us. Look at how, how Hebrews describes his person. He's the, the trailblazer. That's probably, I would think, the best translation of our hegos. Um, my Bible renders it source. Yours probably says author, and those are fine, but it, it really means a trailblazer. Jesus blazed this trail that we are following all the way to heaven. He founded his church. We need to see him. We need to, throughout every moment of every day, stay focused on him who is our Lord and Savior, and we will win the race. Anybody here ever see the classic movie Chariots of Fire? Please raise your hands. Oh my goodness. Father bless the rest of them. You need, okay, you have homework. You got a fantastic, my all time favorite movie. Um, they captured in that film really brilliantly the incredible 100 meter race in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. 
The Brit, Harold Abrahams, won the 100-meter dash because he never turned his head. He looked straight ahead the whole time. The two Americans who were favored in the race, and they were amazing runners, had won other Olympic medals, uh, Schultz and Paddock. Look at what they did. You see the photo finish line? Look, they turned their heads. And because they didn't stay fixed straight ahead, they lost. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, we've got more to study, but we're going to pause for a moment here, and we're going, to, we're going to worship in a song together that I think will help us fix our eyes on Christ. Would you stand with us? Stand with us, and let's worship together. Amen. <clears throat> we, uh, we're, going to, we're going to do that with each of our illustrations today. The band's going to stay up here now, and, and they'll be uh, leading us in uh, and singing response as we worship in the text as well. By the way, if um, because of that, because I wanted to do this, they had to do the offering really early today. So if you have not gotten to give your, your tithe and offering, please make sure you get it to the info booth at the back so I don't get in trouble. Thank you. Um, you think I'm kidding. Um, we are supposed to end up like Jesus, right? Christ's likeness is our goal. We're running to him. So what is he like? He's enduring. It, it, it's, the, it's the key word in this section, endure. There, there is some form of the word endure in verse 1, 2, 3, and 7. Uh, it's your second word for today. Everybody say endure on the count of three. One, two, three, endure. Now let's read verses 3 and 4, which are about endurance. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The illustration this time is martyrdom. Uh, those Old Testament saints discussed back in chapter 11, many of them were killed for their faith. I remember, I remember vividly the first time, unfortunately it wasn't the only time, that a Christian that I knew was killed for his faith, for his trust in Jesus. I found out about my brother in Christ's death, my friend's death, and I was horrified. And I was grieved, and I was pained. And maybe you'll understand this, I was motivated I was really motivated. My friend, my brother was sentenced to die for his faith. Just like many of those Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11. Just like Jesus who took the hatred of all mankind just because he loves you and me and he wanted to save us. And I, as I was praying and grieving in my friend's death, I found that I wanted to be that bold and that courageous. You see, those kinds of illustrations of martyrdom sober us. They, they change us and the implication of, of enduring like Jesus is that we don't grow weary and lose heart. You see that in the text? Don't grow weary and lose heart. Like Jesus sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Old Testament saints stayed the course because they experienced God's grace through faith. Salvation has always been by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and the Messiah alone. They did well. They set aside sin so they could endure. And thus they received what, verse, what chapter 11 talked about, a better resurrection. We can do that too. Think about it. Since Jesus could stay strong in Gethsemane, and since he promises his Holy Spirit for us on our own long, dark, horrible nights, then we can stay strong, right? We can set aside, we can set aside our petty gossip and, and, our, and our lying. We, we can fight with endurance that long battle against depression. We, we can stay diligent in prayer. We cannot lose heart and keep doing what we know is right. All God's people said... Amen. Sing with us, please. Stand together and let's sing together. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well done. This is how faith reveals itself. It reveals itself in Christ-likeness. Becoming like Jesus is the manifestation of faith. Living the new life, not turning around all the time and getting tangled up in our old life. 
sanctification, fancy biblical word for you from the Apostle Paul, sanctification means the process of becoming holy. It in, for Christians, it happens as we become holy after justification. Justification is being made right before God. Those who are justified become sanctified. That is, they follow Jesus. They, they live a newness of life in holiness after him. But sanctification doesn't just come immediately. There's no conference you can go to. There's no magic pill you take to suddenly have Christian maturity. And that brings us to the point in this text at which so many people check out of the Scripture. Because the key to manifesting Jesus, the key to growing in sanctification is pain. That's right, pain. Particularly the pain that comes from discipline. Read verses 5 through 11, which will tell us about this. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And here he quotes from Proverbs. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as a discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? For if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you're, you're Ill, illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his what? Everybody his what? Holiness, sanctification. Verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, thank you. Perfect illustration. Thank you. Um, Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Folks, a home without training stinks. That's why the illustration here is of a father, a loving father at the woodshed chastising the children he loves because a home without training stinks. If you don't discipline, you are asking for a stinky house, right? Just imagine a home full of cats and dogs that have never been trained. (laughs) Stinks, right? I mean, that's horrifying. And that, let's be honest, that is much what our spiritual lives smell like much of the time. Everyone believes no pain, no gain. Never met a person who disagrees with that. But what happens is the coach and the players often have a very different idea of what constitutes the right amount of pain. I used to be a coach. My dad was a coach as well. He was often my coach. And my dad provided, he was an excellent coach, he provided the ideal growth environment for his athletes. He never pushed us too far, although, quite frankly, we sometimes thought it was too much. Sadly, some guys even quit. They would quit the football team or the wrestling team dad was coaching because they just didn't think they could handle it, and they missed the opportunity for my daddy, who was an amazing shaper of people, to help them grow. My daddy is in the Hall of Fame at our hometown of Bethany, Oklahoma, and he's in that Hall of Fame because he's a coach. I can't help but think about that as I look at Hebrews 12 where Jesus is coaching us and the context is the hall of fame of faith. The heavenly father is your perfect spiritual coach because he provided everything that you need. You can stay with his program. I can do what God wants done because of what God has done. He has given all the tools I need. He is ever with me, helping me, especially with discipline and correction. Therefore, I can, by God's grace, I can run his race. All God's people said? Now, look at the implications of this. Let's apply this. First implication is we enjoy sonship. 
God's like a good parent who uses appropriate pain to develop his children. Whether it's chastisement or, or um, what you guys do so well. Some of you parents do this very well. You let the kid struggle through a problem without intervening and doing it for them. Because you know that is best for their development. That is just brilliant. You know that that kid is going to be better because of the process of pain. Uh, my old mentor I was talking to the other day told him I was going to be teaching with you on Hebrews 12. And he wrote me this excellent note. Stan Saint wrote and he said the difficulties that had befallen the readers of this homily did not display God's displeasure with them. Rather, these hardships taught them about God's sovereign love in disciplining them for the sake of righteousness. Discipline was a tool in God's hand for correction and instruction, close quote. That's what it means when it says we are sons. Male or female, we all get inheritance as sons. And our, our pains are perhaps the greatest proof of God's love, whom he loves, he disciplines. C.S. Lewis's famous quote is spot on. Do you remember this quote? God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Close quote. Because God is a disciplining father, we know that we are beloved sons of God, and we share in holiness. Read verse 10 again. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. What does it mean that we share God's holiness? It's kind of a strange phrase. Share in verse 10. This may help a little bit. Share in verse 10 is the Greek word metalambano. Uh, metalambano is a, is a Greek word describing um, when, you, when you have a part in something, you participate in it, or you, you share in something. It's the same root from which we get our word metabolism. Okay, it's, that's what it is, metabolism. In case you skipped that day in seventh grade science, uh, metabolism is the combination of physical and chemical processes that go on in every living organism or cell. It, it, is, it is life. Metabolism is the natural process of life. <clears throat> metabolism involves, just to refresh you, I know you know all this off the top of your head, metabolism involves two things, anabolism and catabolism, okay? Anabolism is where your body takes in food, it takes in energy, <clears throat> and it turns that into tissue. It, it turns that energy into storage. Catabolism is the opposite. It's where your body takes stored energy and it breaks that tissue down and it uses it for energy to move ahead to run the race. Now, if you look at that, it gives you a pretty good idea of what Hebrews 12 is describing because the word is metabolism. There is a natural spiritual process of holiness. It isn't rocket science how you run the race. It's really very simple. We share in God's holiness by what we could call spiritual anabolism. We take in the disciplines of God and we build spiritual health through his disciplines. And then spiritual catabolism is also part of our metabolism, how we run the race. This is how we share holiness. We take what we have learned and taken in, and we turn it into energy for running the race, following after the Lord, blessing others, cheering them on. This is how we share in holiness. We take in God's disciplines, and then we live them out. Friends, when we do that, when we, when we embrace God's discipline, his metabolism, then we truly imitate Jesus. Look at verse 11 for our next implication. Next implication, verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the outcome of God's discipline. We truly imitate Jesus when we make peace. James 3.18 summarizes this. Would you read it with me, please? Let's read it slowly all together, just line by line. I've broken it up for you. James 3.18, all together. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. If you will live out your trust in Jesus, if you will fix your soul on him every day, if you will endure by his grace, by his empowerment, you, you will, you can't help it, you will become a peacemaker. You will become a peace bringer. Please join the band as we reflect on this together. You can stay seated, but let's sing together. continue playing uh, for a moment and we're going to respond. I invite you to join me in responding in prayer. I, I don't know about you, but I'm very convicted by that, that metabolism word in the text uh, because there are seasons where I'm not doing enough anabolism. I'm not, I'm not studying enough. I'm not growing enough. I'm not engaging with God enough. I'm not disciplined. And there are seasons where I'm not doing enough catabolism. I'm not serving. I'm not, I'm not stretching myself to to bless God and bless others. And I'm sure you might be the same. Maybe you've got sins that are entangling your legs. We all do. They're a natural part. It's the togo you wear, but you've got to take it off. And maybe you haven't been doing that very effectively lately. So I encourage you to spend a moment in prayer.
Um, if you'd like to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kneel and pray up here, and I'd love to have you come join me. You're welcome to come up. By the way, if, if you've been visiting the church and you want to become a member, uh, Paul McKenzie, the executive pastor, is right here. You can come up as well, and he'll chat with you while we pray. But, uh, but let's, wherever you pray, let's spend some moments engaging with the Lord, shall we? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Pray with me. you first for those who are studying with us, um, whether they're here or they're elsewhere, but those who have never trusted Jesus as Savior. It, it, Lord, they can't, they, can't, they can't enjoy sanctification until they've been justified, until you've made them right. I beg you to draw them to you right now. Do what you do. Invade people's hearts with the grace of God. Friend, listen, Jesus loves you so much that he, fully God and fully human, came to earth and he died on a cross, willingly gave up his own life. No one took it from him. He laid it down so that he could pay for your sin. Because you can't, you, you cannot get the entanglements off your legs to run after God. You are a sinner and God is holy. By the way, if you doubt you're a sinner, come up here and give me your mom's phone number. We'll prove it, I promise. You are a sinner, and yet God loves you, and he has made a way for you where if you trust Jesus, then your sin is paid for by his sacrifice on the cross. And you know what he did? He rose from the dead so that everybody who trusts him could follow him in everlasting life. They could run the race. So trust him right now, right now. Talk to God and confess that you believe in Jesus. You Put your trust in Him. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are Christians. There are a bunch of us here that have been believers for a long time. Some have only been Christians a short time, but we all struggle. And we especially struggle with the big word in this passage. We struggle with endurance. Lord, we're pansies. We whine and complain and and that's fine if we're aching with you, but a lot of times it's not. It's not that we're turning to you. We just, we just don't want to keep on keeping on. And I beg your forgiveness for that. I pray that you will empower us and energize us such that we really do become your athletes, your people who run the race with endurance because you've provided all we need. Lord, help us not let you down. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. When Chris Legg asked me to speak on Hebrews 12, uh, he wrote me. I had written him and asked him to come teach at Frisco Bible because he's such a great teacher. I love having him there. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I'll come, but you've got to come teach at South Spring. And I said, okay. And he gave me the date. And then he did something that rarely happens. He said, I want you to teach this particular passage. I said, cool. What's the passage? He said, Hebrews 12. And I wrote him back and I said, the entire chapter of Hebrews 12. Chris, I, I, this is what I said. I can't do that in less than three distinct sermons. And here's what he wrote me back. He said, it'll be good for you. 
And he went on to say, I think the chapter's about pain, you pansy. So, um, so he was right. And it was good discipline. I really enjoyed this, although it did nearly kill me. And I still failed because we're out of time. We're out of time, so we've got to stop there. However, let me pass on Chris's edification to you. It'll be good for you to finish Hebrews 12. You're going to finish this chapter this week. And here's what I've done. To assist with that, when you walk out on the chairs, there are a couple of Bible studies that are stapled together for you, okay? The, the, Hebrews 12 is actually in three thought sections. So we covered the first thought section. And this week, I, I really encourage you to take time as a family, alone, in your small group, take time to go through these next two thought sections. There's two Bible studies there with some questions for you to answer to go through. And, and I encourage you to do this for two reasons. One, I think it really will bless you. And secondly, it will keep Chris off my back. Okay? Sound good? So get those on the way out. Paul, come on up and, and close us.